Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church, where we exist to delight in God, display His grace, and declare His gospel all through Jesus Christ our Lord. We can be reached at www.2bcmtv.org or by calling 618-244-1706. We trust you'll be encouraged and challenged by the message you're about to hear. If I were to ask you, why do you come to church, what answer would you give? Amen. Maybe, though, it's to show off a new pair of shoes or a new dress or maybe further your business contacts. Let's assume that it's none of those. Let's assume that the reason you're here is loftier than those things. Maybe you like the songs that we sing. Or maybe you're here because you want to hear the sermon. I hope that's true. Or maybe it's the fellowship. But how many of you would say, I'm here because I want to give an offering? I want to give money. Yeah, I didn't think so. Sadly, most of us are more concerned about how we can conserve our money and keep it stored away rather than give it away. Now, I'm not minimizing planning for the future, but you get what I'm saying. Most of the time, we spend more time and energy planning how we can use our money as opposed to how we can share it or give it away. I suppose in one sense, we could say, well, maybe this is just a sign of the times. And I suppose it is. We become self-promoting, sort of self-preserving. We care more for ourselves than anyone else, and, and maybe it seems more pronounced now than it has maybe in years past. But this is not a new problem. In Proverbs chapter 11, it says, The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered. He who withholds grain, the people will curse him. In Proverbs 28, it says, A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know the poverty that will come upon him. Paul states this in a general way in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Stinginess and selfishness, then, are they're not 21st century problems, or at least not exclusively. They've been with us throughout time. But I think if we could just fully get our hearts and our minds around two statements that Jesus made, I think it would literally transform our whole attitude when it comes to giving. And here's the first one. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure... It will be measured to you in return. Now, most of you know that in ancient times, they, they wore robes and they were tied with a belt around that robe. Well, sometimes when they would go to market, they would pull some of that robe up and create sort of like a, a blouse effect. And then the merchant would dump the grain into their robe, literally into their lap, and they would carry that grain. Well, what's the principle here? Well, the principle is simple, that if you give, you will receive. And if you give a lot, you will receive a lot. For by your standard, it will be given in return. Now, don't run out of here and say that Second Baptist is preaching a health and wealth prosperity gospel. We are not. The reward is for those who are generous in heart, not the greedy. Not the greedy who expect God to give them a hundredfold. But nevertheless, the principle still stands, doesn't it? If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you sow generously, you will reap generously. If you want blessings from God, then give. Give generously. The second statement that Jesus made I want to mention really makes this point. He says this, and this is found in Acts chapter 20. 
the only place outside of the Gospels where Jesus is speaking. Well, other than Revelation. Anyway, Acts 20, he says this, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. So you want blessing? He says, give. In fact, there is more blessing in giving than there is actually in receiving. And yet, you have to admit that our pattern for giving often proves we don't believe Jesus' own words. Honestly, church, we should be able to close our Bibles, claim the promises of those two, of those two texts, and give generously and abundantly. That would be the shortest sermon ever. That would be awesome if we could do that, but we can't. We can't because that's not the pattern for us in general. So instead of just a five-minute sermon, you sort of just got an introduction to the sermon. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I wish we had time to go through chapters 8 and 9, but we don't. So for this morning... We're going to really just take the first nine verses. A little background first, though. As you may know, Paul was often accused of being in the ministry for money. In fact, in 1 Corinthians uh, 9, he finds himself um, forced, literally, to defend himself. And so he writes this. He says, my defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have the right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? And who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it is written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher ought to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much that we reap material things from you? And then later in that same chapter, he says this, So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And then Paul uses a similar, or the same metaphor actually, speaking about pastors and elders. He says in 1 Timothy 5, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And then he gives the metaphor. He says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Also in Galatians chapter 6, we see a similar idea. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Well, here's the point of, of all of this. One of the primary expenses for a church, maybe the number one expense for a church is to support its pastors, those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But there's a second area. There's a second area of expense for a church, and it includes supporting the needy and various expenses depending on where these churches would meet. And so you had these two main areas. The text we're going to look at this morning in 2 Corinthians 8 is addressing the second area, the needy. Those who are without. Paul doesn't have leadership in mind here. That's for another, another time. This section deals more with general needs, specifically the poor and the needy. So you can see that the pattern of giving in the early church was really not all that different than it is for us. They, 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 their life in the church was similar. Their expenses were similar. So have you found 2 Corinthians 8? By the way, just as a side note, in case you're wondering, why do we stand when we read? Have you ever questioned that? It, it's not for no reason. In fact, there's a principle laid out in the Bible why we stand when we read. 
In Nehemiah chapter 8, it says this, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. So standing, when we read the scriptures, we're not trying to be different, we're not trying to be trendy, we're just trying to apply the principle that's taught. It's a universal principle that's taught by Ezra. So, as is our custom, would you stand with me as we read together God's word? Follow along as I read. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge, in all earnestness and in love, we inspired the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. You can have a seat. This is the living word of God. First century churches came into existence in a way that's probably a little different than they do today. They were often made up of combinations of converted Jews and Gentiles. Now that's not news to you. But what you may not understand is that many of these converts had given up everything. They'd given up everything to follow Christ. Families would disown them. They would no longer be allowed to live under the same roof. That would be true with Jews as well as Gentiles. It's not hard to imagine the scenario of a converted Jew being ostracized by his own family, being condemned for abandoning the faith. In the same way, even pagans would be shunned for turning to this strange God. In either case, these families would find themselves homeless. In the case of the Jerusalem church, it was composed of these homeless ones, forced to find new employment, forced to find new living quarters, essentially just starting over. So, needless to say, the Jerusalem church was a poor church. And they need the assistance of other churches. But of course, the problem was these other churches were in the same predicament. They were poor as well. They had the same problem going on, and the Macedonian church was a prime example of that. And so Paul uses that church to, to make his point. Their condition is described, if you remember in verse 2, as a great ordeal of affliction, and they were in deep poverty. Now, this is what makes their giving so remarkable. This is why Paul is bragging about this church because of their circumstances. But this giving goes even beyond the physical. While the Jerusalem church was made up mostly of former Jews, the Macedonian church was not. The Macedonian church, in fact, were pagans. They were Gentiles. They were like Samaritans. And can I just remind you that there was no love loss between those two groups? And the same would be true for here as well. So as, as amazing as their generosity was, perhaps the more amazing thing is that this was done for Jews. And in turn, the Jews received this from former pagans. This is, a, this is an amazing thing. Paul understood that this would be a way to demonstrate the reality that there is neither Greek nor 
Jew, there's neither slave nor free, male or female, because in Christ we're all one. What a perfect picture to show that reality. This would have gone a long way to break down social barriers as well as a powerful witness to the watching world. And just a bit more background, this, this offering that they gave, this was not a one-time offering. This was not a quote-unquote love offering that we would, we would think of. This was one that was literally started over a year before. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we, we get the first glimpse of it. He says in verse 1, now concerning the collection for the saints, he's talking about those in Jerusalem. He says, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of the week, each one of you is to put aside and to save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. When I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So that letter was written about a year before 2 Corinthians was written. Between those two letters, there was another letter, another letter that Paul wrote. It's lost by God's providence. It's, we have no record of it, but we know there was a letter written. It's sometimes called the severe letter. Paul scolded the Corinthians in that letter, and he sent Titus with that, with that. So Paul sends Titus now to see how they responded to that letter. Titus was traveling with Paul. Verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 8 says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you, a glory to Christ. So Titus was one of those who traveled with Paul. In verse 6 of our text, evidently Titus had brought this matter then to their attention. It says in verse 6, We urge Titus... As he had previously made a beginning, so in the very beginning, when he first made them aware of this need, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. Well, the point is, this collection that had been made was in the works for quite some time. This has been going on for over a year. Paul planned it before he wrote 1 Corinthians, sent Titus to begin the work, and now they're about to complete the work. He even mentions this, by the way, in Romans 15, which was written later. He says in verse 25, I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. So Paul then is collecting money. He's collecting from Achaia, from Galatia, from Macedonia, and now from Corinth. And this has been going on now for over a year. So Paul is writing this letter. Are you following me? He is writing this letter to the church at Corinth for them to give to the Jerusalem church. But he uses the Macedonian church as the universal example of how Christians ought to give. Are you with me? Okay. Before we get into the specifics, though, I I think it's worth noting why Paul is sharing all of this with the Corinthians. This is is interesting. I I said earlier that this effort to help the Jerusalem church began the year prior. I read out of 1 Corinthians 16. If you read further along in that text, picking up in verse 3, he says, When I arrive, whomever I approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And then verse 4 says, and if it is fitting for me to go also, they will go with me. But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia. For I am going through Macedonia. Turns out the Macedonians heard about this need of the Jerusalem church and they literally pleaded with Paul to give. That's what verse 4 says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. But why write to the Corinthians? Well, simply this. The Corinthians had agreed to give in the beginning, but apparently they had dropped the ball. They were giving for a time period, but now the giving seems to have slowed down. So Paul is reminding them of their pledge to help. He says later in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago, Not only to do this, but also 
to desire to do it. But now, he says, finish doing it also. So that there, as, as there was a readiness to desire it, so now there may be a completion of it by your ability. So the point is, the desire was there from the church. Even the resources were there. He says, by your ability. I, I think this helps us better to understand why Paul is using the Macedonians as an example. Kind of a long introduction, but I, but I do think that helps us bring us up to speed here why he's writing the way he's writing. So it, it's important for our understanding. So for this morning, what we're going to do is I want to focus on the kind of giving that honors God. And we're going to look at this in four sections, four sections. The first one, the cause for giving, and that's in verse one, the cause for giving. Secondly, the circumstance of giving, that's the first part of verse 2. Thirdly, the character of giving, and that's where we're going to probably spend most of our time. That's the end of verse 2 through verse 8. And then lastly, the Christ model of giving. First, the cause of giving. What motivates them to give? Better question, what motivates you to give? Have you ever asked that? He says in verse 1, Brethren, we wish to make known to you, what? The grace of God. The grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. Did you catch that? The motivation for giving is what? It's grace. It's grace. It's God's grace. It wasn't obligation. It wasn't guilt that they felt. It wasn't to be seen like the Pharisees. It wasn't even just from a philanthropic heart. It was grace, which means this was not ordinary. This was foreign to the world. This was a level of giving that would literally alter their lifestyle. You don't see that very often. But when you do, grace is the only explanation for it. This, um, this comes only from a supernaturally transformed heart. A heart that is transformed causes the believer to seek first the kingdom of God, to set his affections on things above, not on things below, to love God and the things of the world, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are evidences of grace. But this grace-giving was extraordinary because this was not just of their ability. It was beyond their ability. When you see this kind of giving, you know that God has done a mighty work of grace in transforming that heart that is beyond their ability. And this is what Paul wants the Corinthians and us, by extension, to see. He wants us to understand that. One more thing worth noting and it's not even in the text. But if you've been here for the last few weeks, you'll know that we've been in 1 Thessalonians, right? Well, there's a really important verse or two in the opening chapter. And it starts in verse 6. It says this, You also, speaking to the church at Thessalonica, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much tribulation, with joy of the Holy Spirit. And Now get this. So that... You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Interesting, isn't it? Why is that important? Well, for this reason. 1 Thessalonians was written five years before 2 Corinthians. Is it possible that the impact on the churches in Macedonia was so great by the church of, of Thessalonica that they've now become the model of giving for the Corinthians? I think so. I think it's likely that that's what happened. So, so we have this grace moving in the hearts of believers in Macedonia who were providentially influenced years before by the church at Thessalonica. Church, look, if, if there's anything we learn from that, it's this. Never underestimate your seemingly small impact that you can have on other believers. 
God works all things for his glory. Amen? And he did that through Thessalonica, through the Macedonian church, and then to Corinth. So the cause of giving. Secondly, the circumstances of our giving. So if grace is the first cause, which it is, then our circumstances are secondary, aren't they? They really are. They take a back seat. That's, that's a really important statement. It says they were in a great ordeal of affliction. Their circumstances had no effect on their giving. No effect. Now, if, if $10 is all you have, then $10 is all you have to give. If you have $1,000, then that's all you have to give. But the point is this. Their circumstances never changed their attitude. They didn't say, well, we've only got $10, so we, we need to kind of pull back. I mean, after all, we don't know what the future is going to hold for us. No, they didn't say that. No. Whether they had $10, whether they had $1,000, it says they gave liberally. They gave liberally. Paul says they were in a great ordeal. That, that literally means a mega trial. That's, that's how that word is translated. They're in this mega trial of affliction, of pressure, tribulation, distress that was going on with them. So this, this mega trial of, of tribulation is probably not like anything any of us have ever faced. And if you have... If you have been in such a trial like that, then you can understand how difficult it would have been uh, or could have been for them to give. But notice I said could have been. That's hypothetical because they did give. The reality was they begged Paul to give. Paul didn't even go to them and ask. They begged him. That's what verse 4 says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. This is amazing. It was all grace to them. The extent of their giving and the participation in the process. All of grace. All of it. And for people they had never met. People they had never met. Grace is the only explanation. Now it is possible to give generously and yet still give begrudgingly. Not this church. They gave, not just cheerfully, but it says with an abundance of joy. On one hand, there is joy. On the other hand, there is an abundance of joy, overflowing, excess. This is, this is what describes these Macedonian believers who were in this affliction, untouched by suffering. But notice at the end of verse 2. They gave with abundant joy in a great ordeal, the mega trial of affliction. Affliction is bad enough. Paul adds they were in deep poverty. Poverty by itself seems bad enough to me, but this is deep poverty. And so that, that word also can be translated mega pro, uh, poverty. So these believers were in a mega trial in the depths of mega poverty. This is the Macedonian church. People say, well, I'd give more if I had more. Maybe, but I don't know if you would or not. Because what's in your bank account has nothing to do with what you give. At least not your hard attitude anyway. This was a severely afflicted church in deep poverty, and yet they begged Paul to give. They begged him. These were the circumstances of their giving. Thirdly, the character of their giving the character of their giving. These attributes, if we want to call them that, will give you sort of a window into their heart, but it's going to give you a window into your heart as well. And because of that, each one serves, I think, as its own application. There are nine of them, so buckle up. We're going to tackle all nine of these. The first one is generosity. That's at the end of verse 2. He says, They overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Paul says their giving was overflowing. This is, um, this is interesting because in a church where their cup was empty, their giving is overflowing. It's kind of a paradox, isn't it? Interesting. How is it that nothing can produce 
overflow. Well, we've said it already. It's grace. This is grace. This kind of giving finds its origin in the grace of God. And so their giving then was seen as this overflow, this, this spilling over of the wealth of their liberality. Wealth just simply means riches or, or abundance. Liberality is probably not like you think it means. It's, it's probably not the best translation, at least for 21st century believers, because the word actually means faithfulness, sincerity, or it can mean single-mindedness. Single-mindedness. It's the opposite of duplicity or double-mindedness. Duplicity in giving says, I want to give, but I've got my own needs as well. The one who gives with liberality says, I'm going to give, I don't care what my needs are. That's the difference. They had a single-minded focus, and it was to meet a need, present circumstances excluded. They were rich with single-mindedness when it came to giving. Makes you think of Philippians 2, doesn't it? Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility in mind regard one another as what? More important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Let me state something that I think, I hope, I guess, is obvious. It wasn't the amount they gave that Paul was commending. There's no discussion here about that. It was their faithfulness. It was their sincerity. It's a matter of the heart, isn't it? That's really what he's driving at. And that's always the issue. The heart is always the issue. It's, it's never the external. It's always the internal, the heart. That's illustrated in Mark chapter 12. A poor widow, Jesus said, came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. That's single-mindedness. That's liberality. And so he says, for I testify then according to their ability. That's point number two, proportionate. It was proportionate. God never expects us to give what we do not possess. Using the earlier illustration, if you have $10, then $10 is all you got. If you have 1000 then that's all you have. No two Christians operate from the same economic standard. My, my giving doesn't look like yours. Your giving doesn't look like mine. We're different. The Bible gives no percentage when it comes to free will giving. So it's not 10%, it's not 20%, it's not 50%. In 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, as he may prosper. As he may prosper. That just means according to your ability. That's all. Now, some of you just breathed a very long sigh of relief when I said that, didn't you? I'm so glad this is not a fixed percentage. Until we get to the next point. Number three, sacrificial. He says beyond their ability. So first it's according to their ability. Now he says it's beyond their ability. Wait a minute. What are you saying here, Paul? They're to give from, aren't we to give from what we have, not from what we don't have? according to how he prospers us? And that's true. So then how do we give beyond that? How do we go beyond what God has prospered us according to our ability? Well, I think it's this. You give beyond your comfort zone. It's beyond your comfort zone. We all have our own comfort zones. You know where that is. I know where mine is. John Calvin says this in regards to this verse. He says, The Macedonians, on the other hand, make no account of themselves and almost lose sight of themselves concerning themselves rather 
as, a, as to providing for others. It's, it's that Philippians 2 model, isn't it? It's that same idea. Now, this is not reckless giving, but this is sacrificial giving, and it's completely unexpected, completely unexpected by Paul. That's, that's what he says in verse 5. This is not what we expected from you all, and yet they gave. So these Macedonians, they gave generously, they gave proportionately, and they gave sacrificially. But fourth, they gave voluntarily. He says in verse 3, they gave of their own accord. This is why I said earlier that there's no percentage attached to free will or voluntary giving. Mandatory giving, on the other hand, was, was the tithing system of the Old Testament, The New Testament knows nothing of that. Tithing was a method used in the Old Testament to support the theocracy of Israel. That was its purpose. In the book of Numbers, for example, one tithe was used to support the Levitical priests. This was their full-time job. They had no other outside source of income, so a tithe was taken every year, and that supported the Levitical priesthood. There was a second tithe mentioned in Deuteronomy. It helped to fund their national festivals, their Sabbaths, and all the other celebrations that they would have. But there was a third tithe also that's mentioned also in Deuteronomy, but it was taken not every year, but every third year. And the purpose of that was to support the poor, similar really to our present-day welfare system, or at least the same idea anyway. All in all, though, not unlike our modern system of taxation. Because if you add those up, you get roughly 25%, which is probably what most people are paying in income taxes anyway. That's a sermon for another day. On the other hand, though, this kind of giving was completely voluntary, the kind that Paul's talking about. This is voluntary giving. In fact, as I said earlier, it's very likely Paul never asked the Macedonian church to give it all because he knew their deep poverty. So not only was this voluntary, but it was completely unexpected as I read earlier. So then, godly free will giving is generous, it's proportionate, it's sacrificial, and it's voluntary. Fifthly, verse 4, it's a privilege. It's a privilege He says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. Carrying on the idea of voluntary giving, Paul presses on and he says, not only did they freely give, but they actually begged us to give. This is is unheard of. Have you ever begged someone to give to them or to give to a cause? This This is not typical. This is not typical. Only grace would prompt that level of desire. The grace of God, in verse 1, given to the churches in Macedonia. This is what spurred them to do this. Further, he describes their begging as passionate. He, he, uses, the, he uses the phrase, with much urging. Urging means, it's a, it's a word that means comfort. It means to come alongside. It's actually the same root word used to describe the Holy Spirit In John chapter 16, we call him sometimes what? The comforter. The comforter. The one who comes alongside. And so they were begging then for the privilege to come alongside with other churches and give to this Jerusalem church. This is is intimate giving. This This is personal giving. This is empathetic giving. This is prompted by grace as well. Paul says, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation. Favor is the word charis, which means what? It means grace. It means grace. Most commonly translated grace, 122 times in the New Testament. But if you look carefully at that verse, you're going to see that grace by itself is not isolated. It's connected to what? participation. He says the favor, the grace of participation. Participation is a word you're familiar with also. It's the word koinonia. Koinonia. It means fellowship. It's a word that we often connect with the Lord's Supper. 
we, we say it's communion. It's, it's, that same, it's that same word, koinonia. But it carries the idea of intimacy and fellowship and sharing. So when we give to others with the right heart, then we're opening ourselves up to others in a personal way. We're, we're fellowshipping with them. We're sharing with them on a, on a personal level. Well, the Macedonians, they knew that. They understood that. And this is precisely why they begged Paul. They wanted to know the grace of fellowship. They wanted to know that, experience at a level they would never have known apart from giving. The grace of fellowship. The favor of participation. Church, that is such an important point, and yet I suspect we rarely consider that when we give. Giving with a heart that is generous, sacrificial, and voluntary is not only evidence that God's grace is at work in your heart, but it's the pathway to the grace of fellowship. In other words, giving is a means of grace played out in our sharing. Giving can open a level of fellowship not experienced in any other way. So you want to honor God with your possessions, then give. You want to experience the grace of God, Paul says, give. You want to know fellowship with other believers in a unique way, give. Give, he says. This is why Jesus said it is more blessed to what? To give than to receive. God's favor, his blessing, his grace, it's connected to how you give. Sixthly, the sixth point, it's worship. It's worship. First part of verse 5, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. This is where all true worship begins. Their number one priority was to give themselves to the Lord first, even beyond their offering. They gave themselves to the Lord they weren't giving in order to get. They weren't giving so that they could be seen or appear more religious than anyone else. They, they gave because they gave themselves to the Lord. Listen carefully. The highest form of worship is not giving money. It's giving yourself to the Lord. That is the highest worship it's not singing, it's not praying, it's not even preaching. It's when you first and foremost make it your priority to give yourself to the Lord. Then these other areas become worship, but not until the first. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul says the presentation of your bodies to the Lord is worship at its highest. Peter says a similar thing in 1 Peter 2. He says you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. That's you. That's you. Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This, this is complete surrender. This is giving up of your will, your material cravings, the lust of your eyes, the pride of life. Your mind has been transformed. You have set your mind on things above, not on things below. You now have the mind of Christ. This is worship. This transformation of mind this is completely foreign to the world but it's what it takes to honor God in our giving you have to surrender to God's plans and to God's will so giving that honors God is generous it's proportionate it's sacrificial it's voluntary it's a privilege and it's worship seventh it is submissive to leadership End of verse 5. 
He says, but they gave themselves to the Lord. And then he says, and to us. To us, by the will of God. Well, the first question is, who's us? Who's he referring to? Well, Paul and Titus, for sure, because Titus is mentioned here in verse 6, but there's a third person as well. And that third person is Timothy. Timothy. In the opening chapter of 2 Corinthians, he says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy. So Timothy is with him. Titus is with him. They are traveling companions of Paul. Both of these men were pastors, establishing churches under the direction of Paul. So when Paul says that they gave themselves to us, he's simply saying this, that the, Macedo- the, the, the Macedonian church was submitting to its pastors. That's all. Now that's a common New Testament theme. That's not foreign to us. We've seen this many, many times. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Younger men likewise be subject to your elders. In Hebrews 13, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, But we request you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And then he says, live at peace with one another. This, Ma- this Macedonian church was following this principle. They were in submission to their leaders. You say, well, what does that have to do with giving? I don't get that. Well, leadership is charged not only with oversight, but they're also charged with foresight. Foresight within the church. They lead by recommending ministries that the church Uh, ought to support. It is their job to have a vision for the direction of ministries, for the outreach of the church. And if a a congregation is constantly at odds with its leadership, then ministry is crippled because there is lack of spiritual support and lack of funds. So a church and its leaders, as Paul said, they are to be at peace with one another, to be humble towards one another. Pastors then are to lead in such a way as not to lord over their congregation, instead setting the godly example. And then the church, on the other hand, is to esteem the leadership and submit to them. This is the God-honoring model within the church. This is part of the formula of a healthy church. And this is why Paul and Timothy can send Titus, in verse 6, to the Corinthians to exhort them to give what they initially began to do a year ago. Evidently, Titus was the one who had originally approached the church about giving to this Jerusalem church. Now he's returning to complete it. And so as as recognized leaders, the Macedonian church submitted to their instruction. And now Paul is asking the church at Corinth to do the same, to complete what they began a year ago. If I could just say this for just a minute, um, as one of your elders, I, I, just, I just want to express, and this is on behalf of all of us, I just want to express the joy that we have in the oversight of your souls. It is a joy And the reason it's a joy is because of you. It's because of you. You've not only been submissive, but you've done it with humility and with grace and with love. And so it is a joy. And that shows shows in your giving. This This is one of the most gracious and giving churches I've ever been a part of. And it's because you give yourself first to the Lord and then to us. Giving is a work of grace. He says at the end of verse 6, it is a gracious work. It's a grace that enables you to give, and it's God's grace that resupplies you, that fills your cup back up so you can continue to give. And through it all, grace is being poured out on those who receive it and on those who supply it. 
The character of giving then is seen in two other things. Number eight, it is consistent with other Christian virtues. Verse seven says, but just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love that we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. When a Christian gives, it's never in a vacuum. It's never isolated. It's it's always consistent with their walk of faith. Always consistent with it. These Corinthians were not just living out their faith in some sort of mediocre way. He says they were abounding in everything. Your character, he says, it's above and beyond. It, it It is over the top. And he lists a few things. Not everything but enough to get the idea. And I want to look at these first three as a group. Faith, utterance, and knowledge. Faith. This is sanctifying faith. This is not saving faith. This is sanctifying faith. The evidence that sanctification is abounding in this church. And then he says utterance, which can be translated speech in the ESV. Um, It carries either of those ideas. It's actually the word logos. So it means the word. The word. Could be the written word, could be the spoken word. And then thirdly, knowledge. Calvin says this means a practice or a skill. So it seems like Paul is grouping these three together, faith, utterance, and knowledge. And it seems like he's saying that your sanctification is abounding and it's evidenced by what you speak and by how you practice. Your speech and your conduct, in other words. The Word of God, the Logos, is having this powerful effect, and it's affecting your speech, it's it's affecting your entire life. And then he mentions two other qualities, earnestness and love. Earnestness is just this passion, It's it's an eagerness to do something, and of course love that he mentions here was a love that was modeled by Paul. Paul modeled that love, and they learned it from him. They became imitators of him. And then finally, one last characteristic of Christian giving. It is the proof of love. It is the proof of love. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. Love love is never coerced. Love is never commanded. For the Macedonians and now for the Corinthians, giving would now prove to be proof of their love. He says, I'm not speaking this as a command. This is free will. This is voluntary giving. It's never prompted by legalism or obligation. This kind of giving is motivated by love. But this kind of giving is validated by love also. No command. Only this. Look at the earnestness of others. Who's he talking about? Well, he's talking about the Macedonians, right? He just says, look to them. Look to them as the example. He says, I'm not commanding you to give. I'm not telling you how much to give. But if you say you love the Jerusalem church, then prove it. Put your money, literally, where your mouth is. That's what he's saying. John says this in 1 John. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? It's a fair question. In chapter 4 of the same letter, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. John is just simply saying this, you say you love God, then show it then prove it. Prove it by loving your brother. It's a simple test, isn't it? It's simple. It's proof or it's disproof of what a person says. So what is the character of giving for the Christian? What does it look like in the Christian life? Well, it's generous. It's proportionate. It's sacrificial. It's voluntary. It's a privilege. It is worship. It finds itself submitting to godly leadership. 
It is consistent with other Christian virtues, and it proves your love. Those nine things. And if this was simply a lesson on Christian giving and how we're to give and what are to be our attitudes towards giving, then we could stop right there. But there's verse 9. Verse 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So for, the, so for these last few minutes, I just want to turn our attention to why we give. Why we give. Point number four, the Christ model of giving. Church, this, this verse is so rich in truth. It really demands a sermon or two or three. We obviously don't have time for this, so we're just going to connect it to verses 1 through 8. Because as profound and deep as the truths are of that verse, that verse is not hanging out there in isolation. That verse is connected. There is a context here, and the context is Christian giving. You can sense it, can't you? Can't you just sense Paul's mind here? He's drawn from the grace that motivates us to give now to the grace of the one who gave it all. This is the connection that he's making. He's coming full circle here now. He says, for you know, for you know. These Corinthian believers had experienced firsthand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not simply as a cause for giving. This goes back to the first cause of all first causes. This is the pre-existent one, the one who was rich. John Stott says this, commenting on that. He says, this text, surely one of Paul's most powerful, teaches that Jesus his personal existence did not begin with his birth in Bethlehem in the last years of Herod the Great. The words, he was rich, indicate an unlimited pre-existence, while the words, he became poor, speak of his entry into the stream of history at a particular time and place. The one who is eternally rich condescended to us in the person of Jesus from Nazareth. The one who voluntarily became a man, stripped himself of certain divine attributes, went to the cross of his own free will so that you and I might know the grace of God that rescues dead souls. He was rich, but he became poor. This is the grace of all graces. This is the grace that overshadows every other grace, including giving. Because this is, this is giving like no other. Instead of giving possessions, we're given a person. Instead of giving riches, Jesus is giving righteousness. Instead of sharing wealth, Jesus is absorbing wrath. There is no other grace that compares to this grace. And every believer, every believer in here knows that. He says, for you know. You know it. You know it. Then Paul makes this astounding statement. Though he was rich. I said a moment ago that this is a statement about his eternality. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. This is crucial to the gospel. This is critical to the gospel. This is why this is the fact, the single fact that is attacked more by cults than any other, other fact. Because unless Jesus is eternal, he's not God. And if he's not God, then he came to exist some other way, by some other created being. But he is God, eternally existent, equal to the Father and the Spirit. Jesus himself claimed it, didn't he? He said, I and the Father are what? We're one. We're one. The crowds understood this. Why did they try to shove him off cliffs? They understood exactly what he was saying. Paul states it in, second, in, in Colossians chapter 2, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is God. He is God. He is 
rich, and only deity is worthy of worship. Philippians chapter 2, for this reason, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name above every name. It's not Jesus, it's Lord. Lord is that name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was rich. But then he says, Yet for our sake, he became poor. Well, in what way? Well, I can tell you this. He's not referring to the economic status of Jesus. He's not referring to poverty like you're thinking poverty. It's really interesting to note there are a couple of pretty well-renowned men of the past that think that that's what this verse is teaching that it has to do with economics, with actual poverty. Augustine and Calvin to be two of them. Is Jesus sanctifying poverty? Is that, is that what he's getting here? Is he trying to elicit sympathy? Uh, no, this is not a statement about Jesus' finances or lack of them. So what is it? What is it to be rich? What is it that he's poor Well, Paul is speaking in spiritual terms, isn't he? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking about money. That's you and me. We're the poor in spirit. We're the bankrupt. This is the idea that he's communicating here. Jesus became poor, not by having no home or possessions. He became poor by taking on human flesh by humbling himself on the cross to the point of death. Again, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul summarizes it by saying this, Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is how Jesus became poor. Not through deprivation, but through humiliation. And then lastly, Paul concludes with this statement. He says, so that. I say this all the time in Sunday school. When you see those two words, circle them. Circle them. So that you, through his poverty might become rich. Rich in what? Possessions? No. What's he talking about here? Eternal riches. Eternal riches. The same riches that Christ possess. This is what he's referring to here. Riches in salvation. The joy of the Lord. Richness in the peace that we have with God. All of that. This is how we become rich. Let me give you one last verse, which I think summarizes this whole thought. Familiar words. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin. Christ's riches. To be sin on our behalf, he became poor, humbled himself, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. There it is. Manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. No greater grace. So that we might become rich. Folks, that's the message of the gospel, isn't it? That's the message. He divested himself of his riches, became poor, so that you and I would receive his riches to make us rich in Christ for eternity. And this is the way we're to give 
when brothers and sisters are in need. And it's the gospel that so beautifully shows that. Let's pray. We trust you were encouraged by the message you heard. For more information about our church, visit us online at www.2bcmtv.org or call us at 618-244-1706. And thank you for listening.